Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Introducing the greatest animated series you've never seen, Lightning Dogs. These canine commandos are lost on a post-apocalyptic Earth and battling the forces of the evil Glampire. It's a tribute to the cartoons and sci-fi of the 80s and 90s, and Nerdy Show is hell-bent on bringing it to life. Blocks sold separately. Join us as we document our quest from the moment lightning struck to every world-building session and beyond and make our crazy dream a reality. Roll with the pack at lightningdogs.com. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by a comic shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. And with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. And this Nerdy Show is coming to you literally on the road. Hi, I'm Cap, and I'm here with... John. And Brian. From Flame On. Yes, that's me. I'm from Flame On. Welcome. And we are driving back from Durham, North Carolina, to our home base of Orlando, Florida, because we've spent the weekend at Mopefest. Uh... The 14th year of Moogfest. Has it been that long? Uh, yeah, it started in 2004 in um, in New York City. I've only been covering it since it's Asheville years. Moogfest is a music and technology festival based around uh, Moog synthesizers and the ethos of, of Bob Moog, the creator of the Moog synthesizer. And uh, it's my favorite event annually because... It, it's the funkiest, weirdest fusion of convention and festival that, that I know of. Um, during the day, there's all kinds of symposiums and, and lectures and workshops on uh, all kinds of science and technology things with incredible people. Um, we'll get into that. Uh, and then at night, it's, it's a music festival with artists who are largely electronic-based, but... Uh, push the envelope in a number of ways, and it is a hell of a time. It's about future thought and uh, creativity. That's that's the order of the day. So we're going to talk about the things we did, um, and this is going to be a rather raw episode since we're, you know, <laughs> we're we're well. I mean, we're we're here in the midst of uh, of travel, so clearly. Time is not on our side. We've been keeping very, very full days and nights, and we're jamming as much content into it as we can. I don't know about you, but I'm still on a high of bizarre energy from this weekend. Getting to roam around Durham, North Carolina, which is lovely. So much 
so much better and nicer and cooler than you would ever, well, I ever would have expected. <laughs> no offense to my brothers and sisters up in North Carolina, but Durham's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, it was such a cool event, as always, going from a lecture on JavaScript visualizations of music in a browser, going over to a circuitry panel, then learning about the ins and outs of a, of a, of a modular, a synthesizer modular, and that's just today. And that's the slow day. Like, it's been such a crazy mess. And, I mean, I know you guys are going to share uh, your experiences. Um, but that's what you were doing all day? Yeah, pretty much. What were you doing today, John? I only went to one thing today because of a scheduling mess that happened. How was it? It was insane. It was... Uh... Well, let's, 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 since we're talking about it, let's talk about that. Because, your, John, your thing that you went to is kind of like a part two to another thing. You went and you saw a musical performance one night, and this is kind of like uh, the postscript explaining a little bit about what you saw. So what did you see first, and, and then what did you see today? It was uh, Helen Money. She plays with a cello, but <laughs> she doesn't necessarily do anything about it particularly normally. I found out today, after I saw her in a concert, so to speak, that she basically grew up classic cello and uh you know then became a rock musician essentially so the way she plays cello is both with the informed you know classical training but at the same time she does horrible terrifying things to it from that perspective we're talking like she's literally taking a guitar to pick to it she's like practically slapping it with her bow um she has an amplifier behind her that she's literally will on occasion bend the cello towards that to create a, a, a horrible feedback loop, but it's like she's controlling it to keep it within, you know, to keep it under wraps basically, like just wacky, wacky, non-traditional uses of the cello. Um, and she's also got a insane array of pedals, um, just tons and tons of pedals to alter, distort. I mean, at times it's like, you know, really, really harmonious music, and then it goes into like really industrial heavy distortion like just crazy crazy stuff and she just goes from one to the other like there's absolutely nothing yeah I think that's a fair portrait of, of Moogfest <laughs> in a nutshell yeah. um, and, and and for perspective the, the venue she performed at I mean as I understand it I, I didn't get the chance to see it but it was a it was a one person show in in you know basically a rock club yeah yeah it was in the uh, motorco hall so, yeah, um, there's there's a lot of facets to Moogfest. It's quite varied. I mean, if you if you go back, in I guess we'll, we'll hey we'll link all of them on this episode's page. We've been covering Moogfest since I've been going to Moogfest, and uh, there's there's a lot. <laughs> it has it has a, a long storied history of, of content, and has had headliners like Brian Eno. The entire writing team of Futurama, um, <laughs> uh, Tangerine Dream, scores of some of my favorite '80s films, and wonderful musicians on their solo records, of course. But um, uh, and then big, you know, bigger acts like like Moby, M83, MIA, um, just to name bands that begin with M. <laughs> um, there's 
they've had an extremely high pedigree of guests and many notable names that would typically pull in festival crowds. But this year was different because it, um, it there were no huge names at the scale that would potentially pull in crowds. And, and that was due to some static that was happening uh, behind the scenes that resulted in a new managing force taking over Moogfest in the middle of what would have been their lineup announcement and development cycle for this year. Now they pulled off this year without a hitch and all the artists got paid and all the programming was great, but it was a smaller year, which actually made it a very special year, probably the, uh, something to the likes of which I don't know if we're gonna ever see again with Moogfest, where it's always these you know boutique experiences with very eclectic creators and in this case, um, it was super intimate. Attendance was lower than average, though still quite high. I mean, they said something like they estimated 6,000 people were there. Um, but it was uh, this this smaller, it was a small year with a, with a high pedigree of people involved. And what from, I, I spoke to the, uh, to the guy who, who runs Moogfest now, um, we had a, a, a very long, very awesome conversation, which I've recounted a bit of in uh, an article that the three of us wrote for Consequence of Sound, which we'll link to in this episode's page. That'll recount a lot of what we saw with direct quotes and more detail than we can probably pull out of our brains without notes right now. But um, uh, next year, things are going to get big. They're going to get a little crazy, and we're going to probably see Moogfest bounce back to um, it at its most extreme heights of uh, well, its most extreme heights. That's probably that's probably the best way to put it. So one of the things that I, I do think you're, you were getting to is this year was the year to check out people you didn't necessarily know about, and I was sad at first that there wasn't going to be like craft work or you know, uh, some other you know, Mike Oldfield, some big huge name that would draw lots of uh, people but I was happy then that it forced me to go and really dig and look into these different artists uh, Tess Roby was one that uh, we got to experience and I had never heard of her before uh, this festival and I think this was actually her uh, her American debut, is that, that correct? That's correct, yeah. So like I love her already and she and, and I know you're, you have more stuff you'll, you'll share about her but like overall just Thrilling to find out these positions, and then people like Psychic TV, which I have not previously heard of, at least that band, but the predecessor to it, Throbbing Gristle, certainly have heard of, and was thrilled that you know they were there, and you know in a, in a more intimate environment, so to speak, you could find the time to not go to the big acts and go to these other acts that really in some ways are more interesting because you're not going to get a chance to see them as readily as a, a bigger bigger uh, draw. You just picked two, I think, important groups to highlight um, there because that's that's exactly what the, what Moogfest always embodies, these, these facets of, of their music presence, um, but this year was entirely that, where you'd have... You'd have up-and-comers who you've never heard before but are of an extremely high caliber because they are... Well, because Moogfest's curation is rather impeccable. And then you'll have these legendary artists, some of whom are really 
cult following kind of uh, acts. And there's all every year has always had some like revered cult status artists who are who are present. And this year had quite a few of them, and it was it was awesome because yeah, Psychic TV is a group that I've I've known about for a while, but never really imagined that I would get a chance to see them. Um, I guess in order of discussion, yeah, Tess Roby, if uh, if you dig Kate Bush or like uh, some of the more uh, intimate, less uh, target kiosk facets of what was defined as new age music, like um, like Suzanne Ciani or uh, Kate St. John, then uh, you're going to like Tess Roby. She makes ethereal, beautiful music, and I, I think something that's quite telling is that she was picked up by a, the record label Italians Do It Better which is the record label of Johnny Jewel of Chromantics, and that he was a major creative force all throughout this most recent season of Twin Peaks. So wrap all that together, and you get this artist. <laughs> and um, I, yeah, I think I think that's a, if you if you know any of that stuff, I think that maybe says a lot about what you're getting into and whether you might dig her music or not. If you like uh, ambient, sort of more uh, electronic, but I hate to say new age, but um, there's another group, uh, a performer actually, that came this year, uh, John Hopkins, who I've been tracking for the last three or four years, mostly because of his uh, appearance on the Echoes uh, show on PRI that plays a lot of the more ambient, sort of what used to be a game called new age. And Hopkins not only did like he do an amazing DJ set in the Armory which is this venue in Durham that's like this old I assume it's like from some uh, war maybe I don't I don't know maybe Civil War but um, like really like impressive building that um, they installed this crazy spatialized audio system Meyer sound came in and I think John could talk a little bit more about the the tech involved but basically what they used to call quadraphonic and then became more like surround sound, but taking that to like the next level of immersion. So different artists throughout the weekend played in this venue, uh, probably most notably Susan Shiani, which we'll talk about. Um, but the John Hopkins DJ set in that venue, it was already pretty lively. And then when you add that spatialized uh, component, immersion, being fully bathed in this, this sound, the sound field, it was really impressive. And then, he comes in and they play, uh, he played his normal, his actual, like, you know, electronic music. And again, I've tracked him for a while. I've heard some of his new stuff. Everything sounded so much better in that venue in Carolina Theater with the probably some of the best visuals I've seen in that theater in a long time or for any act. And yeah, like, um, you know, electronic arts where it's the person with a keyboard up in the front, like, that, uh, that can be a difficult sell. Like, you have to, like, either, you know, you maybe have to go within yourself and dance, and that's going to be, like, really what propels you. Because, like, you know, because there's not much happening on stage, you can't really admire the craft, per se. Um, Hopkins thwarted that entirely by having the best visuals <laughs> anybody could have. So, I mean, if you're, if you're uh, you know, that, that kind of band was there. Um, I don't have their names in front of me, but there was another group, a duo, that played the Armory, again, using that spatial system. 
And um, was it Shabazz Palaces? Uh, they did as well, but the one I'm thinking of is like Sigurdsson and Byrne. And evidently, they've worked with like Sigur Rose and Tim Hecker and Ben Frost, both of which were here at Moogfest two years ago. And they've done a lot of uh, commercials, television, movie soundtracks. And they also laid down some amazing ambient but dissonant, you know, just just a, a, a musical bath, but ones that sometimes challenged and sometimes was just threadbare and like gorgeous. One of them had like a cello and, and wasn't playing it, you know, too uh, rock star style, but uh, still added just a, another level of musicianship. Um, and again, I had never heard of either one of these people. And because Moogfest brings in such a high caliber of original musicians from everywhere across the planet, uh, it really exposed me to stuff that I probably would never have heard. I think you touched on another important point because Moogfest is so, um, I mean, they're, they're a synthesizer company. They, they love sound and sound equipment and they love providing the best sound. And that is another big facet of what makes Moogfest special because in large part, if you're seeing live music, there's, there's many reasons to see live music, but one of the reasons that's the least highlighted and perhaps most important is physically feeling the music. When you can have a truly out-of-this-world sound system um, bombard you with, with enough sound to make the, the, the act of you as an individual being in a space with a, a variety of acoustic options that you can experience in a way that is absolutely different from any other way you could experience it on your own, um, where there's just the, the facilities and money and everything else involved make it a truly uh, unique way to experience it, especially dance music or electronic music in general. Um, it can be quite visceral and and utterly, like, I mean, like, tra tra transformative seems overly dramatic, but... Um, but it can give you some big feels, y'all. <laughs> you know. Well, like I, I didn't. Like, I don't do substances. I, I drank a little, but that's about the extent of it. And I mean, there were genuinely tr moving and transcendental moments being bathed in this audio. I mean, I was I was weeping at one point. I had just like some not trance-like things, but you know, even experiencing the cabinet, uh, Dr. Caligari, scored by Susan Chiani and her ensemble from the Berkeley School of Music, like. There were some elevated experiences during that piece and seeing those those classic visuals. Like there were just some moments that just hit you perfectly and and like you said, the the Moog commitment to elevated musical experiences through technology is, you know, why we're able to do this. And and you you touched on something that we really need to earmark for for very soon, which is the uh, the Caligari performance. But but John, since we're still talking about the uh, the spatial stuff, yeah, let, yeah. So the um, I went to a talk with the uh, five people who either helped create or enhance or basically work with the three D spatial system, and basically what it does is you have speakers all over the place, like a bunch of reasonably small speakers, because since you have so many, you really don't need anything too big, right? But um, essentially what they're doing is, is that they're actually sort of triangulating the space around an imaginary area where you want it to basically emit from. And so it's actually just 
figuring out that distance and altering the amplitude to the three nearest speakers to sort of triangulate it within that space. And they found that that's about all they need. Though, to be fair, I, I guess these days they're probably working towards, you know, using even more sources than that. Like, that was what they were doing in 1986, and I mean, I guess they continued for quite a while. But, um, you know, you had just, like, really, really weird... There was this ecologist who mysteriously does sound installations, and she said at the talk that she basically fired missiles acoustically through the soundscape, and it startled people so much that they left from, like, one of her installations that she had done in the past. And that's just... I, I don't even fucking understand. <laughs> but that apparently seriously happened. So, with that in mind, um, that was the, faci- the, the the setup in the armory um, had this, this immersive sound. Um, probably the only thing by comparison that you might be able to go out and experience would be uh, seeing a film in Dolby Atmos. And... Um, one of the first things that we saw using this setup in the armory was Susan Chiani, the legendary synthesizer performer, um, do an original score for the German expressionist film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is made in 1920, a silent film. And it's, if you're not, if you're not familiar with it, it's a haunting, weird movie that's kind of like uh, everything Tim Burton aspired to. <laughs> And uh, v- visually, at the very least, um, for most of his career, thus so far. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure many people have, have made their own scores to it. And this is not an, an un- unknown thing to do. Um, Philip Glass did a, a score for Nosferatu and maybe a few other things as well. I think there was a, a special performance of that on the, uh, the, the mall in Washington, D.C. many years ago. And with this, Johnny did such an amazing job of really just enhancing this. It uh, and using using the sound system specifically because she has been very focused on quadraphonic sound and sound that can like interact with space. When violence occurred in the film, and it only happens a few times, like most of it's like suspense, but when violence occurs the sound attacks you in a very visceral and exciting way. Yeah, the thing I love about Chiani, who I, I'm so thrilled is back, uh, when I saw her here two years ago, uh, or at Moakfest two years ago, I was just elated because I had lost track of what she was doing. Um, she kind of dropped out of the, the public scene, and she used to be up there on par with like a Wendy Carlos but representing the West Coast or the Don Buchla school of, of additive synthesis where you, you sort of build a sound up from the, from the bottom up. Um, and she still like carries on the Buchla tradition, uh, which Buchla still makes, it, you know, Don Buchla passed away, but you know, the company is still alive and it's been amazing to see Moogfest bring them in and embrace them so readily when they used to be fairly competitive. Uh, but yeah, Chiani brought her Bukla, which from the very beginning, Don Bukla was committed to quadraphonic spatial audio. And so the Bukla, the music easel, has controls, even from back in the 60s, to spatialize audio. And the quadraphonic, you know, two speakers in the front, two in the rear. And so she's like, I only do, Chiani's like, I only do quadraphonic 
or uh, spatial audio in any of my pieces because the technology has been there. But what she's wrestling with now is trying to sort of get beyond just the bukla and really push that field. Um, and she did so with the uh, the score. The other thing I want to mention about the the score is I mean, she had a whole ensemble of people. She had a electric cellist, uh, electric wind controller. Um, she had a vocalist that was doing some vocal processing. She had a guy I think walking around with an iPad playing uh, an Animoog, which is a um, Animoog, I should say, which is a, a iPad-based version of, of a Moog synthesizer. So like, uh, it's great, by the way. I have it. Uh, you can download it on your phone. Uh, it's awesome. So I mean, it was her composed, pre-composing these motifs and sort of laying out a game plan. But it was live. The score was live performed, and she even talked about how she left herself some wiggle room for the performance, and so she could sort of improvise as as needed or as desired and be more expressive as a performer, because what you don't want is just uh, pit play and, and kind of go with the motions that you've already, you've already programmed. But again, watching the performers up close as we were, it was a very dynamic and really moving at times uh, performance. Um, you know, her, her approach to the, the soundtrack was to develop these motifs that are mainly arpeggiated, you know, notes, but then she could process and sort of remix them into new motifs to do, to use in different situations. So, I mean, it was fascinating to hear her process. And again, this is something at a music festival, you don't normally get the process part of it. You get the performance and then you're left figuring it out. But what Moogfest excels at is giving opportunities for the performers to sort of explain their process and talk about how they get to where they, uh, where they are. Yeah, I'd say that's really like the whole damn thing right there is that element. Because it is about the process. Because like if you're at Moogfest, you at least have a non-passive interest in music, right? Like you aren't just a, a listener. Everyone there has like a, a vested, strong interest in it. Um, and I mean, you know, that's why I was at an electric cellist like talk today. Um, you know, and like you just see that over and over again. What was also curious, though, is, you know, the science stuff this year was, like, really, really AI-heavy. I like, really AI-heavy. Do go on. They had um, Google with the Magenta project there, and, I mean, I think the guy that was there actually just developed one of their most recent um, revelations, let's say, in their audio music-related works. Um, and... Shit, they also had somebody else from... Ugh, anyway. They have IBM there, too, I think? Right, right. God, I... Moogfest is, in fact, so long that I've already forgotten things that happened. Yeah, it's, it's just not a... a it's like... It's a four-day event. Alzheimer's. <laughs> it's not early-onset Alzheimer's, I swear. But, uh, yeah, no, they... they I, I went to a workshop, and then a... What the keynote was given by one of the, the leading... Watson developers basically. Well, one of the keynotes because the headlining keynote was uh, Chelsea Manning. Yeah. This was the one like the day before that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so uh, they were there with Watson talking about all of the crazy stuff that you can theoretically do with Watson and a little bit of where that's going except it seemed like they were really, really holding back. I could have easily done the entire talk myself but, you know, that's how that works. Um, so what you're saying is is that um, that in this case the 
the lecture given by IBM for reasons of non-disclosure and, and, and potentially national security uh, was a very layman's presentation. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, like, the Magenta stuff, though, was literally them just telling us about all the crazy shit it can do, which is really, really extensive. I mean, like, we're talking about novel melody creation, and, I mean, I guess probably the most interesting thing to musicians right now is just the fact that they, because they kind of create, like, this weird neural net space, they can actually basically be, you know, given two um, different kinds of sounds actually create the in-between and they can actually go and actually add an extra dimension onto that so you could add four sounds and basically explore the space between all of those things and so you're able to blend things that don't make any sense together like a cat and a cello you'd be able to literally access a sound dynamically in between that space Um, Uh, did you hear that do you know what the sound sounds like because i want to hear that sound well, if I had my laptop and a connection to the internet, I could probably generate that for you, but not right this second. So so Google's API for Magenta is available to the public? Yeah, um, and it's all open source, in fact. So it's not just an API, or rather, it's, they also have a JavaScript um, a open so that you can access that a little bit easier. <laughs> They've uh, recurringly had issues with people trying to install TensorFlow, which isn't particularly surprising because I've been trying to do it for the last fucking week and it didn't work. Anyway, What's that? TensorFlow is a neural network um, framework, I guess. Anyway, basically it allows to, to um, train up neural networks on your computer, and my main problem has been dealing with graphics cards and trying to get a GPU accelerated and that kind of thing. Also, why I was trying to install it was to work with it in Unity, and that's a beta project right now, and it all requires very, very specific versions of a lot of things. Is that the neural net tool that was probably used to do, come up with those um, <laughs> surreal titles for Nintendo games that don't exist? Or like where like every video game title was fed into... This is something we covered on Nerdy Show many months past. Do you recall what I'm talking about? I do not, but yes, I mean, you know, you put a data set in, and then you say, okay, well, now generate another one that's like these. But, um, no, the the Unity project, they, um, one of the things that some random user did was actually quite incredible. He had trained a, um, a robotic armature in Unity to throw pancakes, um, and he managed to eventually, after some failures, get it to basically land them on a plate, no matter where it was placed on a counter. And then he made a little robot that he actually modeled after the butter-passing robot from Rick and Morty to actually using, I guess you could say, a hyper-primitive version of, like, computer vision to navigate its way across the counter, dodging obstacles to push the butter to the plate after the pancake was flipped onto it. And it was all done, actually, with neural networks, with AI, no, like, hard scripting at all, which is pretty incredible, all things considered, even though it sounds a bit ridiculous. Yeah, um, that's a, that's a very challenging and surreal, um, premise you've just explained. (laughs) Um, for, for a couple days of, uh, of the show, I did a series of interviews, which, uh, which we'll link to in this episode's page. Um, I was, 
there there's a, a Moog marketplace that they um, that they have set up every year where they'll highlight the latest um, from Moog synthesizers and just their, their general product line as well as um, the products of many other synth makers like people who make profit were there um, and uh, and reverb was there if you remember last year I, I nerded out pretty hard about reverb bringing uh, they're, they're a, um, an instrument company that you can you can buy you, you basically you buy instruments online and some of these instruments are very rare and some of them have pedigree like this was used by this person on this album and in this case they had a Fairlight CMI which is my favorite music instrument of all time and has been used to make my favorite records of all time uh, and, and it's basically it's an 80s uh, it's a very what at the time was a very expensive 80s synthesizer and sampling computer and was used to uh, great effect by Kate Bush, Peter Gabriel, Trevor Horn, Thomas Dolby, and many more. Um, so Reverb recently launched a, another service that's called Reverb LP, and it's an online record market. So if you've got collectible records you want to sell or buy, then uh, that might be a place for you. So they actually set up a, a physical record market. Um, and I was up there speaking with artists and personalities who'd been brought in from Oakfest where they would pick out a couple records to discuss and we would use that as a, as a conversation starter and it was it was amazing it's my favorite video interview series I've ever done and I've done a few at this point um, but it was so great to have you know to have this this really like this, this talking about what we could connect on like I was speaking with an artist called uh, Wajid who whose work I'd only just experienced like many others as a result of well this person's on the uh, the Moog list let me let me check them out. Oh, he's he's really good, cool, and but even still, the music he makes doesn't sound anything like the music that he brought to the discussion, um, which in this case was Laurie Anderson's "Home of the Brave" um, <laughs> and Herb Alpert's 1980 or 1979 record "Rise." Um, both of which are the kinds of records where I'm like, I'm the only, per I'm probably the only person I know who likes this. And then we got to when we were both in that same boat. I mean, like he got goosebumps talking about Laurie Anderson. Like he showed, he showed them to me. It was, it was really special to have that kind of uh, interaction, like right off the cuff, and just, just sh spread that love. And I was speaking with a performer called Sassy Black, and she had this impeccable selection of, of three records she chose. Um, and they were all, all they were all color co coordinated. They were all predominantly red album jackets. Um, but one of them, the one like I, I love all of the the artists she chose, uh, like the Ramsey Lewis Trio, um, and and Stevie Wonder. But uh, the one she chose that, that landed hardest for me was a record by Kashif. Do either of you know who Kashif is? Yeah, I've, I it's been forever, but yeah. Like Kashif is a dude who I only found out about in the past couple of years. He's he's like an amazing record producer. That's what he's best known for. But his solo work is super cool. Like at the surface level, it's uh, sort of standard R and B fare, but it's way way quirkier than anybody else. And the production, especially, is super duper weird. Um, I've, I haven't stopped listening to him for like this whole year and. Uh, and it was so cool. Like she had a similar experience. It was like you know, like I, I'd listened to his records a whole bunch without 
knowing or without knowing that he was the creative force behind it and then come find out he's got his own solo records and they're really good and no one knows them and it was so wonderful to I don't know to to, to bond with all these these folks about this stuff um, so that's just two of the people I also spoke with Tess Roby um, and I spoke with uh, uh, wow the whole yeah I did I did speak I just did speak with Chelsea Manning about uh, about EDM and Rage Against the Machine <laughs> So, well, I didn't get to attend the Ch- uh, Chelsea Manning keynote, um, but I heard some really cool things. Uh, I, overall, did you think uh, she contributed to the festival? I, I think it was an odd fit. Everyone kind of looked at that, uh, not knowing her story other than what most people know, which is she was in prison for, you know, leaking secrets, basically, um, and then being transgender. And other than maybe the whole, at one point, they were trying to have more of a transgender transhumanism track what did you think about how she contributed to the uh, in her talk how do you think she mapped into what Moogfest is really about that's a good question because it it really like it was it wasn't I mean everyone who I know who like <laughs> saw the list like uh, Chelsea Manning what the hell what's, what's, what's going on um, this this is actually this weekend was the one-year anniversary of her getting out of prison um, which is pretty crazy because it seems honestly it seems like a lot longer <laughs> from a spectator's perspective, um, and uh, what I what I was really surprised and delighted by is that she was actually a perfect fit for Moogfest. Um, she's a huge fan of EDM and drum and bass, and she was even at one point an amateur DJ, you know, trying to climb the ranks until she enlisted in the military. Um, and, you know, she's also a techie and a coder, and that just makes, that makes her, like, the, the ideal attendee for Moogfest. And on top of that, like, there's a certain degree of sociopolitical revolution that runs through the heart of this festival, which has been a point of emphasis for many years, and this year's uh, especially, which uh, the first wave of artists that they announced were predominantly uh, female, non-binary, and transgender artists, and they've had a focus on, you know, making sure that the conventionally white male festival lineups were usurped by this because electronic music has such a rich history of all peoples contributing to the fabric of it and that you know that still persists very much today and should not be underrepresented so she's at the epicenter of all of that the keynotes in the past have been folks like scientists from SETI or um, folks like the head of uh, United Therapeutics who also created a uh, serious satellite radio um, herself a trans person so the, the the keynote speakers are often a very eclectic bunch of I hate the I hate the corporate jargon hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Term thought leaders, but like, you know, per, it's, it's, it's a good catch all in a way of uh, persons of interest in a conglomerate of fields who are lightning rods in their respective zones. Is there a better term for that? I fucking hate thought leaders. I mean, I'd say tastemakers, but that's not even right. They're just people who have cool stories and have done some amazing things that. A lot of people don't know about. And are know. probably famous. Yeah. And they're or at least certain. somewhat. <laughs> so, so uh, I mean, so we covered a lot. Oh, we covered some of the music. There's, I'm sure, a lot more we haven't talked about. We talked about the, uh, the, the keynotes and some of the science and tech. One of the things I wanted to briefly talk about is modular synthesis and how Moogfest has really baked into it the modular, uh, it's called like Eurorack modular uh, synthesis community in an important way. Um, in years past, they've had vendors that sell various uh, modules that you can install and network together and make music with, and which is really how Moog started. They, Moogs used to be modular components that you would wire together. Yeah, um, I don't know if you've maybe made it this far into the episode and haven't tuned out yet with like, either you maybe you know what that is or you don't. So I suppose what Brian said there is that yes, like think of think of individual components that perform a variety of specific functions that you can rack together. What he said, Euro rack, rack together into. Um, think about an arcade cabinet, but an arcade cabinet that has not just one big screen, but a series of like different control panels, and all those go together to make music. And that's basically what it is. And you can fully customize these setups in a multitude of ways, and they come in different sizes. And and there's all kinds of ways to, to mash these parts together. So when you're when he says modules, I guess think about think about that. Or or if you're like a guitar player, think about pedals, because pedals are kinda like that. They're little boxes that you wire together with audio cables to make new sounds, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I got really into this year was getting new modules. And if you're a longtime listener, you've probably heard uh, episode three hundred uh, where I brought my very early uh, synthesizer that I've been cobbling together and added some incidental music to the, uh, the show. Not the best by any means. Uh, I, was, I think I had just put that thing together the night before. Yeah, that's, that's episode 300 of Nerdy Show, which was um, one of the uh, most haphazard, ill-advised, strange shows we've done. Um, <laughs> And uh, which I, I, but it was, there were some great moments in there. For example, when we when we called up John for some surprise science, and you were you were pumping tones through the phone line, and uh, and and that was that was good. Yeah, I liked your reaction to that. Wait, what? What when did I, I do? When you had, we had you on Skype, and I started making the the synthesizer do weird sounds, and you were freaked out. Or oh, I wow, I don't remember anything that happened. <laughs> Are you sure you were talking to me? Oh, hey, your computer just said, welcome to Georgia. 
<laughs> it's, a, it's a new module I got. No, so so one of the companies that I really spent some time learning about is called Make Noise. They're out of Asheville. They're very similar to what Moog started out as. Like literally, uh, the, these two partners moved down from Brooklyn, got a house in the mountains, and just started making modules in their little cabin in the woods. And now they are one of the premier modular synthesizer manufacturers again for this kind of smaller community of people who really like making weird sounds and I, I got to go to some of their master classes I got to I bought two modules from them uh, that hopefully in a future episode I'll, I'll have cobbled together and maybe I can make some more weird sounds for the for the show but anyway I just for John specifically oh just for John of course fine I'll fight back I'll fucking run shit through my FL studios with all the mods that I can fucking patch on there like all the guitar pedals that I can simulate. Could, could we have a synthesizer scoring of Haley's Comet? Um, <laughs> I want to be Carlos Windows. Uh, you can be Zeroder. I wanted to be Vangelis. <laughs> no, Cap's got to be. Well, I don't know. Right, we'll have to assign these roles. But I think I feel like there's something there. But so um, the the modules uh, they're very they can be a little pricey. But uh, I was very happy to get to learn more about them. The other thing is they had a modular on the spot, which is a basically a synthesizer picnic, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so in California and, and actually cities all over the country, they'll gather together all their modules, the musicians will come out, they'll have food, they'll hang for hours, and they'll just play for each other in an outdoor situation. And so it's really cool. They have done this now for the past couple of years at Moogfest. They featured artists who you've never heard of, probably from all over the country. And it was just a really cool little community, a, sort of a micro-community within the larger Moogfest community of these really kind of, I mean, to do this, you need to, you need to know about electricity, music, I mean, it requires all of the different disciplines that are applied. Like, who the fuck decided I'm going to get my huge-ass fucking sense modules, like all this shit, and just fucking haul it outside to have a goddamn picnic? Crazy motherfuckers. And I Californians, it. I think, is specifically. <laughs> so, yeah, make noise if you're interested in their stuff. They're actually having, like, a mini Moog Fest in Asheville next month, uh, middle of June. Uh, and I'm considering very strongly going up there for it and bringing my giant synthesizer rig, which I did bring on this trip. Barely touched it, unfortunately, because we just had a million other things to do. But who knows? Maybe next year it'll... Uh, make an appearance on the uh, the modular on the spot picnic. On the picnic circuit? The picnic circuit, yeah. You gotta throw in the circuit word there. That sounds like, uh, picnic circuit sounds like a great Mario Kart level. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, let's see. John, what was your favorite performance? Lawrence Rothman. Lawrence Rothman. Yeah, so I had to, I didn't know, like, anybody on the entire list at all so I had to uh, go over the course of like an hour or two and, and literally listen to absolutely every single person and some of them were harder to track down than others but um, Lawrence Rothman like the sound is very tears for fears and they were playing in a church so I kind of thought to myself that seems like a very interesting dynamic kind of thing to go right and, uh, yeah, it was absolutely fucking insane. Like, the acoustics of a church mixed with that kind of a voice was nuts. They had an incredible lighting system in there, which, to be fair, I guess was probably Moog's doing. But, um, they actually had projections 
going perfectly like shaped into these sort of like faux window alcoves, um, creating this like absolutely and just bizarre ethereal holographic style um, banner. Basically, I mean, it was just very very strange. Obviously, optical illusion, not real hologram, but I mean, like it was a really really cool effect. But then, like when the performance is going on, you have like this crazy like poignant musics and you wind up having like the entire fucking church become like red fires all the way up you know vaulting the ceiling like just incredible dynamicism um and the whole thing was just really 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 insane yeah i'm really bummed that i missed that but you showed us the pictures you took I was like, that looks amazing. Like, why aren't they doing more projection-based visualizations? I think you could do some amazing outdoor, uh, you know how they do the projection on a building or whatever. Like, you could do some really cool visuals outdoors. Yeah. And it would fit the Moogfest technology theme and everything so well. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that actually a lot. I don't remember quite where I was when the idea started coming to me, but I kept thinking to myself, like, man, if we use some of these those crazy-ass projection things where they, like, 3D map the room and then start, you know, like, projecting all this crazy shit everywhere and, like, wow, you could do some really, really nuts shit here. And that was part of what they were doing there, but obviously it wasn't, like, the whole thing. I would love to see them up the visual game to that level because, like, it really just takes the music and just covers an entire other sense then, you know? You have sound check, you know, and then you get visuals to fuck check visuals to fuck you got such a way with words well they did have a bedroom concert I think I don't don't think it's the same thing though do you want to go on the record with that (laughs) I miss the bedroom concert every year the the sleep concert whatever it is every year I'm like I need to sign up for this and then I miss it yeah Um, that's the um they do have this is an an annual Moogfest tradition is um performances that happen where you you take a pillow and a blanket and you go somewhere and you sleep and someone does a durational performance for the entire night um you you just go go anywhere randomly in the city out in the rain just go somewhere well i uh i did a similar thing this is there's a lot of experience based stuff that happens at moogfest that i've oftentimes either one not been able to get into or two just decided that it was a higher priority for me to hit up um you know the mu- the musicians and installations and so on, um, but this year I did I did a thing called Yoga After Dark, where um, the the yoga 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 doers the the yogis uh, that we were were surrounded by speakers while uh, tones were played, and it was it was fun. Um, like like everything at Moogfest, like it is like having that vibrational tonal component is a great tool. Um, uh, especially when there's a meditation involved, but um, but this was particularly fun because uh, unbeknownst to me, we were doing partner poses, which I'd never done before, and so us strangers partnered up and uh, folded our bodies into some very weird and interesting ways. It was delightful. So, what, um, Cap? What was your favorite performance? Uh, that's that is a toughie, Brian, but I will. I, I cannot. I don't know that I can speak to a favorite performance, and it may have been honestly, it may have been Caligari. That might have been the one, um, but I can certainly list off some dope shit that I experienced. I met Ono as a part of the uh, the interview series I was doing, and they're a experimental act from the 1980s, based out of Chicago. 
they do some sort of like seemingly highly improvised performances that are they're they're purely expressive. I mean, uh, there's a dude working synthesizers. There's a dude singing through like making mouth noises. There's some there's some guitars and drums. And but most of all, there's there's this beautiful eccentric spirit. I mean, the 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 two dudes at the heart of Ono are are so so sweet and uh he'll do all these costume changes he'll he'll put on like uh, uh, a fabric crown of light up diodes and and a dress like a ball gown singing about the you know the inevitable traumas that come from a dream house and while banging on a very warped garbage can lid with a piece of chain and it's it, it's it's whimsical like you know performance art but it's very good whimsical strong performance art um that was a lot of fun getting to getting to know their work and getting in getting to hang out with them and talk about music and culture and we, we mentioned psychic tv at the top of the episode and it's something worth circling back to um i saw a screening of a film there called uh, bite of the twin which is B-I-G-H-T, um, which is about the, the front person for Psychic TV, Genesis Peorage, who is a fascinating individual. I'm not sure the pronouns required to describe them, so I'll just use they, them. But they have a soulmate called Lady J, and you may, if you've, it's possible you've, you've heard about what, what they did together because they under, underwent a bunch of plastic surgery to make each other both biologically male and female um, like appear similar to one another to become virtual twins and had an incredible relationship founded around um, you know music and art um, and this this in, impeccable bond and this documentary was this I guess it was originally intended to just be a, a document of Genesis traveling to, to Africa but come to find they went to a a part of I think I think it was Nigeria where they have more twin births than anywhere else and have a, a spiritual culture revolving around twins and Lady J died and Genesis was looking for a way to reconnect with her and sort of assure that wherever they would go next that they would be together and in discovering this twin culture in Africa it became like kind of imperative for them in their spiritual quest to undergo a bunch of voodoo rituals to uh, to explore the traditions of of twin spiritual connections in this place. So I got to see this video and connect with this artist who I'd read about passively in the past and then later that night go see them perform and Psychic TV is like this just a cool psych rock band who's made a kerjillion records for the past 30 years, over 30 years really and they're an act that I should have known about a long time ago and didn't and them and Ono both queer acts both old acts both acts of cult followings who are religious in nature they're both like they're both gospel performances where they their philosophy is what dictates the performance in a lot of ways and music at its fundamental level like it is a great many things but but from the, the, the fundamental components of how humans interact with music, it is a metaphysical or spiritual 
act of the way that sounds can move us, the way our minds interact with these things. Um, and with, for the sake of not rambling anymore, I'll, I'll wrap it up. But I, but I think there's, there is some kind of a dialogue happening, and they're a part of it, and they're a part of this, tap, this rich tapestry of history. And I think it was a very special thing that Moogfest was and continues to be party to tying all of, all of these facets together. It's really, I mean, you're, you're saying tying together. What you're saying is they're, they're synthesizing. It, it really yes. is the act of synthesis. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> I mean, to put a bow on it, not to put you know, too, no, too no. cute a thing. You're just distilling, distilling all of that into one yeah. clear statement. Thank you. Yeah, you're quite welcome. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the legacy of Bob Moog. It really was always to him about marrying together disparate forces and disparate ideas, you know, breaking into the classical music world and saying, hey, guys, I have these cool new tools you can play with. And it's okay, and in, and, and in some ways really adding to the American music tapestry by doing that. Like, it, 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 it's a carrying on his legacy in such a beautiful way. Um, and, and people like Wendy Carlos, who was the first trans person I ever was aware of, and her legacy and, and, and honoring her journey as a trans person and as a musician in electronic, in electronic music world. Like, all of this is why I think they've done something, like you said, that's so special and important. And, uh, you know, they had younger queer artists there, too. Student, uh, non-compliant. Um, oh, gosh, there was a few others. But, like, you know, I'm so happy that this year was what it was. Um, it wasn't just a bunch of big names. Not that that's not fun. And hopefully next year, like, they really do step up and we get some, some big anchors. to Just so more people can come out. They may come for the... Moby, but they stay for the psychic TV. You know what I mean? Like, you, right, you, you yeah. get them in the door with the big thing, and then you say, "Hey, by the way, we also have all this other cool stuff." And uh, I, you know, overall, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it with you. Uh, this is my third time, and uh, it, it really is, like you said, it's really the, the one of the most fun things that I get to do all year. Um, and every time I go, I come away with a new instrument and new ideas and, and new skills. Like, John shaking his head. For shame. Your credit card hates you. It really does. No, it, this is true. But thank God one of the merchants like, oh, we don't take credit cards. I'm like, well, I'll get you cash, but it's not going to be a lot because I'm not going to draw. I'm not going to bring a, you know, a money bag to buy a fucking module. But uh, no, I, I really, I really do enjoy this every year. And uh, I'm so happy we uh, got to experience it together. That's a good wrapping point, but I still want to drop a bunch of shout-outs. And also, John, I would love to hear you talk about Midori Tadaka. Oh, yeah. Oh. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the, the performance, perhaps in addition to Lawrence Rothman, that I regret missing the most. John did the research it took to really get the, a feel for everyone who was, who was, you know, showcasing their work here. And, uh, and as a result had, I'm pretty sure, the best luck of all of us with seeing the coolest shows that Brian and I can only be like, what? That sounds amazing. Fuck! We hate our decisions, but also, we're okay with our decisions? Well, I mean, we had to, you know, cover all of our bases, and we're only so many people and, and trapped in time, surrounded by space. That, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, so... She is a expert percussionist and also like seventy or something, um, in Japanese. So I mean, you know, hence the name, right? But uh, yeah, no, it was uh, less of a musical performance and more of almost a theater performance. 
she comes out like slowly sliding um one of those uh, weird bell things like just like you don't even perceive the sound of it you just think like the speakers are kind of like whining a little bit and then you realize that she's actually like making a tone with one of these you know weird bell things um and then you know she just freaking goes from there she starts working on like a gong and she makes it make insane sounds like i mean first she starts doing like a rhythm and a melody all at the same time and once again this is percussion i don't anyway by the end of her gong usage she is making it make sounds that are more reminiscent to a theremin than anything um she goes from soft beautiful uh what did you say was a marimba oh marimba yeah yeah marimba never pronounced that aloud always read the word (laughs) um she plays like an insane large marimba um you know absolutely beautifully and then she gets all of these instruments she's using she just coaxes them to make sounds that don't make rational sense um so she'll go from you know once again very much so like the the cellist telling money that both of them are basically taking their instruments and getting sounds way beyond a traditional classical you know sterile setting they're both very willing to go hard and do whatever the hell it takes to get what they want um and so that's what you saw here as well she's like going around banging stuff she's like shouting and like weaving weird word poetry um while also then you know going off and engaging in these incredibly fast-paced percussions on like this drum set she had she was literally like she had two drums that were literally uh, on one side and another like mounted horizontally to her so she was able to like hammer one and then draw her arm back turn her head and hit the one behind her head then like rapidly like at insane speeds and just I mean, you know, she goes from, like, slow and steady and classical and beautiful to, like, rapid, fucking just crazy fast, insane, spastic, practically, but, like, you know, with that just constant precision. It's very, very hard to actually talk about now that I think about it. I want to read a text from you. I said, how was it? And you said, difficult to communicate. Akira. Magic sequences from Willow. Sequences that never go where you think they will. Prospero's books. Yeah. Do you want to explain that haiku? (laughs) Was it? Uh, No, it's not. Oh, good. Thank God. I was about to say, like, that doesn't make rational sense. Um, But, yeah, no, so um, some of the magical sequences from Willow, you really have, like, a lot of crazy, crazy weird um, tonal sounds going on there while they're basically chanting the magics. Like Tuatha, Lokothrak, Tuatha. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it was basically pretty close to that. Um, sometimes she even used, you know, English. Um, at first, I'm pretty sure she was shouting things in Japanese, and then she started talking in English, but she has, like, a thick accent, so I didn't necessarily pick up 110%. But, um, yeah, and then the whole Akita thing, like, a lot of the basic pacing and tones, um, because of the percussion and, uh, you know, the she's one person, obviously, so there is a... Body. Honestly, John... I would not be surprised if there wasn't, like, a very thin connection between her and the folks who performed the Akira soundtrack because, I mean, that was that was a, a noted percussion group 
in Japan who were responsible for that. And I don't know, I don't recall their names off the top of my head. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of connection there. That was also my thought about it when I made the Akita connection, but I haven't actually looked into it either. But I mean, if you've heard the Akita soundtrack, it's there's there's some similarity there in once again the pacing and and kind of like what they're doing and especially once again when you start adding in the vocal component as well and this is a whole team of people in that film and this is just one person yeah yeah exactly one person who's going around and like practically doing a slow dance through the thing gradually striking on these random things like around it's just the whole thing was just nuts it like i said it's very very hard to describe because it was an hour of that an hour of like this weird contemplative almost like some sort of a ritual that was i mean i guess that's like the easiest way to define it the whole thing felt like an actual ritual some sort of bizarre weird thing like i should have magical powers now but i don't like maybe you just haven't tried yet yeah, I guess. Maybe if we get hit by a car, I'll randomly be the one that survives. <laughs> cool. Thanks for that, John. <laughs> It'll be, like, unbreakable. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, I think ritual is an important word and one that really, um, that's really, I, I think, a, a galvanizing notion that's, uh, that's true of a lot of Moogfest, but very true of this one, and maybe true of uh, of, a, of a great many things going forward. Um, so, shout-out time. Shout-out to Madam Gandhi, who's a very cool individual. Um, if you've ever seen a Futures female t-shirt, that's, uh, that's her doing. And uh, she was, she's a former drummer of MIA and brought that to the stage with some, uh, some really great performances where she had a, uh, a 3D-printed remote controller that is a, uh, a mappable... It, it maps, like movement to MIDI playing so she could like move the controller through space on an XYZ axis and uh, and it would amplify her um, her notes uh, I'm probably fucking that description up um, and she describes it in more detail when I asked her about it in the on-camera interview we did uh, author and Punisher I don't care for industrial music and I didn't care for his music because I don't because industrial music, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it definitely has a place in terms of, like, sound design and all that. It's just not something I reach for. I wasn't really, I don't know what I, what I would personally do with it and ways to incorporate it in my life outside of soundtracking purposes and things like that, um, where it can be quite effective. And I think, I think it's very it's very effective and affecting, but it's not for me in the long run. But he, uh, he is a fascinating individual who does um, industrial music at the most literal scale of probably any human being ever. And John, you can probably talk a bit more to that end. Um, yeah, he literally makes his own instruments and they're all incredibly physical in nature. Like, especially his big rig, which unfortunately wasn't traveling with that one. It seemed to be like a, a more light, uh, air friendly one perhaps, but he literally makes his own shit. And his day job is like advanced engineering with, you know, million dollar microscopes. So he uses the same, um, talents and work through, uh, work process to actually do that in the creation of these instruments. So he has a lot of, they're all very physical. They're all very like, he's basically, you know, working out while he's making the music. His, um, sequencer, or not a sequencer, um, I guess it's actually a trigger technically. So 
he has this thing. He's literally, like, slamming his fist on this, like, weird, um... Here's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of one of the things you used to use to take credit cards, like, before you put them in the machines where you had to, like, get a carbon copy. It's like that, but, like, but made for, but made out of metal and for giants. Yeah, I mean, the thing looks like a lathe, practically, you know, like that kind of wrought metal, um, all that kind of stuff. He also screams into a, what looks like a curved microchip. Yeah, he has a really weird... I, I don't know much about his microphone thing, but it looks like a bunch of microphones in a bizarre curved, like, um, array. And he also made a couple of more instruments recently. Um, they're just all very weird. He has, like, these things that he sort of, like, spins around. But, like, everything has, like, these weird interfaces. And ultimately, in the back end, it's all just triggering up samples and that kind of stuff. But, like because of the physicality of him getting them to play in the first place, it alters how all of that sounds. Um, and what, you know, it ultimately does to the music then. But yeah, I mean, like, the guy literally makes his own instruments, works out to make them even make any noise at all, and is just basically doing, like, crazy fucking industrial. And for what, for that genre, I mean, like, but for my ears, who doesn't really appreciate it particularly much, um, it's it's awesome it's like it's very much like true to form of like what industrial if you described industrial music to someone who'd never heard it before they would imagine it was this i think um now brian we both saw a really cool demonstration where an original lev built theremin was performed and explored and this is like as in built by mr theremin himself approved with his own signature in it what yeah so for those of you who don't know theremin is played <laughs> and also of, for john <laughs> yeah it's it's an instrument you play by waving your hands to to put it very simply and this is an, a russian instrument that they, a, a russian or then soviet born uh, physicist created based on his work as a physicist he realized there was instruments he already was using that made these interesting sounds, and so he created something from that he called, I think, an ether, ether vox, mm-hmm. and it was uh, a nod to, you know, the ether where uh, uh, early uh, understandings of magnetism and electromagnetism um, sort of explained, you know, how you could have this uh, energy transfer across a, a vacuum or, or air that had this, you know, charge. And so he, the Soviet Union loved it, they, they sent him on a worldwide tour to show off the, the prowess of the mighty Soviet Empire. And uh, Leon, or Lev Theremin, built, uh, I believe originally through RCA, a bunch of these sort of original theremins that then RCA mass-produced at that time. And so there are these theremins out there in the world that still exist. And one of them was found in North Carolina by uh, a junker, a self-proclaimed junker, a uh, collector who goes a- antiquing or to estate sales found what he what they identified as a theremin, looked at it, and knew almost right away that this was an original, you know, built by theremin himself theremin, and had the uh, the you know the the patience and the uh, the wisdom to then call up or, or email people who could restore it back to pretty much a playable 
really you know, high quality instrument and uh, that's what they displayed and it, they showed it they had a performer play it there in the auditorium and it was it was really cool I mean it's a theremin so you know what it's gonna sound like but even having heard the theremin sound for the years and like you know good vibrations in the Beach Boys or other like sci-fi soundtracks like hearing the an actual theremin. Well, hey Brian yep. it wasn't a theremin in uh, Pet oh, Sounds. Wasn't? No it was um, the I'm gonna probably say, I don't think I don't I don't think Mellotron's the right word, but it's an instrument that's very oh similar to a I've theremin. I've always said it's a theremin. I've all, I always thought it was a theremin too, and I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that it's it's instead the theremin-like instrument that you play like a keyboard, which is what Elmer Bernstein used in the Ghostbusters score. Oh shit! All right, well, point taken. Um, but yeah, so like hearing this original instrument being played masterfully. Um, it, it was a treat and then seeing it because they had it turned around so you could open up this like cabinet that showed the electronics and you know this is like 1920s 1930s era huge coils and and tubes and just like just lethal voltages of electricity oh completely and 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 but masterful and just you know thinking about the this the, the theremin is really one of the very first electronic musical instruments how was it powered uh, it was powered through, I think, a standard uh, 120 volt. Really? I, th I think so. I'm impressed. I was imagining those giant, fucking, like, horrifying, terrifying, like, chem batteries. Oh no 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 no! This <laughs> this isn't that old, but um, but no, it was it was really neat. I'm glad that they had this presentation, and I'm really thrilled that this guy, uh, whose name escapes me, who owned it, um, was was willing to share it with the public in this way. Yeah, it was a. Uh... We still we don't know where it actually came from, but it was definitely it was stored in a chicken coop for decades upon decades before it eventually made its way to an auction house. The amount of shit that people find in chicken coops is astounding. I say it was a chicken coop that was turned into a shed. So it was a former chicken coop turned shed. Anyway, um, and then didn't brought it to Moog Music, and they all lost their minds. Um, and that was that was just it was a very very cool presentation. Uh, shout out to Little Boots, who is a, a great performer who does fun synth pop and put on a wonderful show and a very cool DJ set after hours at a fairly off-site venue called like the Fruit Factory, where it's like a fruit packing factory that was in prior years, and I didn't know about this. This has been going on for years, but there were like all-night raves illegally happening at this at this at this venue. Um, I had no clue. At now the venue, um, as part of the onward and upward momentum of Durham, now has bathrooms and is now like an official on the record like legal venue. So there were. Um, there were DJ sets there by Little Boots, Honey Dijon, um, and uh, and it's gosh, it's everything you could want from a uh, from like an antique warehouse sort of uh, environment. Uh, <laughs> it it's like it's like going to the set of what would be depicted as a rave in a '90s film. I mean, I suppose okay, so that's probably no, that's probably more accurate than that than that would be because if it was in a film, then it would be very sensationalized but it was it was cool it's like like it's a very cool weird old space i mean i don't know how old the, bu the building is but it looks it looks old as fuck y'all so, <laughs> um boop, boop, boop. all right what else we got on my list um uh, shout, out, shout out to Alex Bazin, whose show at the church I wasn't able to make, but who makes really wonderful music and was a fun dude to hang out with. He selected um, 
some uh, Brian Eno and Steve Rake to uh, to speak about for our uh, our record selection. So that was super cool, and and that's it. Those are my shout outs. I think there's probably more. There's many more deserving people. An incredible, I mean, an incredible talented roster of of awesome artists and awesome people who put on the festival who made it possible. Um, any other closing thoughts from you folks? It was a great experience, and I, like I said before, it's one I'm happy to share with you guys, and I'm I'm absolutely thrilled that every year it comes up. I just it's like it's like it's like what I look forward to the most, in spite of all the other insanity in my life, like Moogfest is such a treat and such an otherworldly for four days in in this lovely town in, in North Carolina to be transported into this electronic music wonderland, and uh, yeah, I'm really happy uh, every year we do this. That's awesome. That's a beautiful sentiment. And I want to remind all you fine folks who are still listening to us uh, <laughs> throughout all this uh, all this madness that uh, maybe you do or don't connect with. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any questions, please do ask. Um, but thank you for listening. We are in an entirely listener-supported podcast network. We rely 100% on your generous donations. You can give one-time donations at nerdyshow.com slash support, or even better, you can support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdyshow. There's all kinds of perks there, including actually like in prior years, I have done some recording of Moogfest talks. I didn't do any of that this year, um, but uh, but there's actually a lot of archival Moogfest uh, stuff in uh in our perk log on uh, on Patreon, so you can find it all there. We do have a publicly available list, so if you want to scope out everything we do have on there, um, you can find that in our tags on our Patreon uh, posts page. And uh, also, rating and reviewing us on iTunes is something you can do that requires no money whatsoever. It helps a lot. iTunes is still like the number one marketplace for podcast discovery. It is not the best by far, but it is the place and that does mean a lot a little bit of extra effort on your part means a big difference to us and we will read your rating or your review if you leave a review you don't have to leave a review you can just leave a rating and that's super handy um we'll we'll read you on the show there's also Podchaser, which is a legitimate platform for podcast discovery that enables you to not just rate and review shows but also specific episodes and we pay attention to those as well so if you like this show especially or have comments about this specific show that's a way for you to, to interact with this specific episode give it props and in doing so can push the visibility and notoriety of our programming to the top of those respective lists in a platform that we think is uh, really cool and is going to take off um and that's all i got thank you so so much for listening we'll see you in a week with another episode of nerdy show Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.